Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. When you think about farmers in New England, what do you picture? Well, most likely they're white. More than 98% of farmers in Connecticut are white. Coming up this hour, you'll meet two young black farmers in Bridgeport trying to change the image of farming. Producer Tegan Engel tours Park City Harvest with farmers and entrepreneurs Richard Myers and Sean Joseph. And later in the show, if you think Connecticut and wine country are words that don't belong in the same sentence, think again. On a recent episode of Connecticut Public's Where We Live, we heard about two local vineyards and explored how Connecticut's landscape impacts the flavor of local grapes. Yes, our tiny state has a terroir. But first, Tegan Engel gets a tour of Park City Harvest and talks with two farmers making a difference in the Bridgeport community. My name is Richard Myers. They call me Farmer Rich. My name is Sean Joseph, also known as Farmer Sean. I met up with farmers Rich and Sean on their small farm in the Bridgeport Trumbull area. In the backyard behind a small white house, they were hard at work tending the soil and the plants. I first met them at a Bridgeport farmer's market where I bought their microgreens, oils, t-shirts, and their new book, Grow to Eat. I've long admired their work to uplift black farmers in Connecticut. Plus, it's really not easy making a living from farming, but they're doing it. Standing between the garlic and the callaloo, I asked them how they got started in farming. Farmer Rich answered first. We both have similar stories when it comes to how we got started in farming. My grandmother started me off at a young age. I grew up in Jamaica, so that's where we eat off the land. She also taught me business as well. She was a lady that bought a lot of stuff from America and brought to Jamaica and sold them at a different rate. And um, she was also talented at gardening. So what I did was when I started a business, I wanted to do something that was um, tapped in with her in a way because she had passed away. So I wanted to do something that would help the environment as well as be tapped in with her. And that's what led me to this here. Mm. Similar to Rich, I got started off with my grandmother at age seven. We moved to a house where we finally had a yard. So after flipping over a patch of grass and also seeing a seed go from, you know, nothing there mm-hmm. and then growing to a large plant, providing its produce, it looked like magic to me. And I still believe it is. And I just fell in love with it ever since. So I've just always dealt with plants in some way, shape or form. And then years back, I was working at a cable company. We got laid off. And I decided I'd never go back inside and work a regular job again. So, you know, I decided to get in touch with what I was passionate about, what I felt I can do every day, even if I didn't get paid for it. And that's what led to, um, you know, the road of becoming a farmer and having a farm business. Mm, That's great. So how did Park City Harvest start? And tell us a little, what is Park City Harvest? Well, it started in Naugatuck Valley Community College, the um, same college that we met at. Um, we were the two a- only African-Americans in the program. We had um, a teacher that taught us that you can make a good amount of money off of tomatoes. And we looked at each other and was like, hey, we're going to start a business. So we went to feed the neighborhood as well as get paid to feed the neighborhood. And as we were in the business, we noticed that we were the only people really in this industry, in our neighborhoods especially. So one of our main missions was to change the image of farming. And um, we've been on that road ever since. So. Could you tell us a little bit about what are some of the components? You have a farm, 
tell us a little bit about the farm and what you do with the farm. What are you growing? How are you getting it to people? We're attempting to grow a variety of different herbs, leafy greens, and some produce, primarily stuff that is uh, what we say cultural appropriate. So based off the population in our neighborhood, so we grow in different things like sorrel or okra, a lot of different leafy greens, some kalaloo, things like that. And the reason why I say attempt is because we've managed to protect our crops from the deer that have come in previous years. And it just seems the groundhogs woke up a little extra hungry this year. So they've found or made little holes in the fencing. But we do have a have a heart trap. As you guys can see, we've been starting to try to capture them. Yeah, you caught one this morning. Yeah, it's right so, over there in the trap. Yeah, <laughs> so along with growing the produce, um, we do make products from them. So from our peppers, carrots, and cabbage, we'll make something called peaklies, which is from my Haitian background. And we also do make a, um, different types of infused oils with rosemary or garlic and chives or thyme or sage, things of that nature. And outside of growing here on the field, we do have an indoor setup where we do microgreens. So along with either selling to small local restaurants or food truck owners, we also do have a microgreen subscription to where people can purchase them almost like any other monthly subscription that you would be able to purchase. Yeah. Part of what I wanted to talk to you both is that in addition to being great farmers and being black farmers in Connecticut, you also seem to be amazing entrepreneurs. And um, you have some really good mottos. Part of being good entrepreneurs, you also do good social media. And I love your that you're farming for financial freedom is one of your mottos. Can you talk a little bit about what that means for you and why that's so important? Because a lot of people in our community, they really assume that farming is tied into slavery somewhat. So what we're doing is changing that format, right? So if you're farming for financial freedom, you're basically farming your own money. You're growing your own money, which is you're growing until the point you're growing enough income as well that you're financially free just from growing your vegetables and you're growing your plants. Yeah. Um, one thing that we also have is uh, stay loyal to the soil. Mm-hmm. So with that one, it has a few different meanings, but one, like literally staying loyal to the soil itself I always feel, because people always ask about different issues or problems that they have with their plants, and I always go straight to the soil, because a lot of times that is the source of it, and it is the foundation. It's the foundation of all the building blocks of life, so it's all about staying that, and it's also a term as far as staying loyal to your community, to your neighborhood, to your family, whatever it may be, so Mm -hmm. whatever source you came from, just in a sense staying loyal to that. Right. I love that they're both about nourishing, like when you say in terms of the health of the soil, like that it needs to have all the right nutrients in it so the plants can be healthy. When it doesn't, right, then the plants get sick, the bugs come. Because unlike us, plants didn't feel the need to develop technology to evolve or help them survive so as long as they're provided with the right nutrients within the soil they're going to do everything on their own whether it be fighting off pests or diseases or recovering from any type of pest or disease or even any physical damage whether it be from wind branch falling somebody stepping on it any anything like that so they're a lot smarter than us they've been around a lot longer and they'll only grow in the conditions that are correct for them so in our case being that we're farming we have to create that environment so but anywhere else in the wild you're not going to see an orange tree growing in the middle of the woods in connecticut because it knows it can't grow there right right in terms of the financial freedom i think you mentioned you have your csa Mm -hmm. your produce csa in the growing season you have your microgreens that is year round right and then you have a whole bunch of products that are listed on your website correct 
And then you also have, I think, a Patreon. Can you explain to folks what that is? Well, our Patreon is for people that really want to learn how to farm on a budget. So we do have Instagram and we do have workshops for people that would like to learn how to farm on a budget. But for people that would like to hone in and know a little bit more how to start from nothing and then finally have your own farm, I would say go to our Patreon. Mm -hmm. So in terms of being connected with your community, I know that you just said is a really important part of what you do. You're in the Bridgeport community, right? So how do you think it affects folks in the Bridgeport community to be seeing the two of you as black farmers feeding your community? From what we've seen over the years, I think it's definitely a positive impact. It's been a lot more agricultural-based businesses that we've seen just in Bridgeport itself. Like Rich stated earlier, when we first started doing everything, we, as far as black farmers, we felt all alone in it. We didn't know of anybody. We didn't see anybody anywhere, everywhere we went. It was all just the same whitewashed faces. So what we've been doing, we've seen, you know, an increase in the interest. I'm not sure if it's directly tied to us or not, but there have been a good amount of people that have come to us and said that they've started a garden because of us or they've gotten interested into it or they've started or joined different community gardens, things of that nature. So it's definitely a good feeling of knowing that what we set out to do, that it is being done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely know for a fact a good three agricultural businesses in Connecticut alone came up to us and said, we started our business because of you guys, as well as people that's outside of the agricultural business, just entrepreneurs in general say, hey, you gave me the confidence to actually push myself to go ahead and go. So mm. I love that part of it. I know you recently published a cookbook that is a grow to eat cookbook. Can you mm-hmm. tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so it's a growing kit as well as a cookbook. So it teaches you how to grow as well as how to cook the stuff that you grow. One of the main problems that we've seen at the farmer's markets when we were there is that people will ask you either how to cook the um, vegetables grown or how to grow the stuff that we grow at the farmer's markets. So what we did was come up with a book that combined the two, and that came up with the book Grow to Eat. So you can grow exactly what you would like and know exactly how to cook it and preserve it for yourself. Yeah, I really enjoy the cookbook. It's really easy to follow. And I love that you have, you know, how to grow like tomatoes, eggplant, Mm -hmm. collards, different things. And then right after it, you have a bunch of recipes and they're different, right? Like on tomatoes, you like tomato paste, you have tomato kind of salsa for Mm -hmm. you can put on toast and different things like that. I love that you mix the growing and cooking part together because I think sometimes it's hard for people to bridge that gap. So I like that you did that for them. Yeah, there was a gap and there was a hole that we've seen that needed to be filled. Yeah. Yeah, that's wonderful. As you know, only 1.3% of farmers in Mm -hmm. the United States are black. And that is largely due to the fact that the U.S. government has intentionally stolen land back from black farmers over the years through really unjust practices. And you all are doing it. You're, you're farming here in Connecticut, which is a, you know, a, the land here is super expensive, hard to access. So access to land is one of the hugest barriers for people wanting to get back into farming. And you sort of have a cool setup here. Can you tell us a little about like, how did you get access to this land? And um, well, when we first started off with Park City Harvest, we were literally spread too thin. We were all over the city in every community garden. We had plots over mm. at Rich's house. We had a uh, plot in a few of my aunt's backyards and it just became more and more difficult as the season would go on getting to each site making sure everything was maintained and then of course there were still animal issues everywhere and we didn't have the funding to be able to put up fencing or traps or everything like that all over town so through trying to just in a sense to start crowdsourcing to um, build up funds to purchase or lease some land 
the property owner here, she saw that through our social media and she reached out and she said, hey, I have, you know, this large plot of land here. You know, you guys will be free to use it however you want. And then a little backstory on that. Her grandfather used to farm on this land here. And what he would do in like an old world way is everything that he would harvest, he would just fill up his pickup truck and drive up and down the road passing out produce. So her vision, she just wanted to see the land turn back into doing something like that. So she saw what we were doing, saw our mission, and she was all for it. So we came to an agreement, settled on a, a lease that was affordable and equitable for her as well. We just we've been here ever since. This is our third or fourth season out here for doing this. That's great. So I wonder, since we're in standing in the middle of your farm mm -hmm. and there's different stuff growing, could you maybe take us for a walk a little bit to see what's growing on your farm? So around the whole border of the farm, first of all, we have flowers. So we have marigolds, we have edible sunflowers as well as just floral sunflowers. As you come over here, we have a bunch of array of hot peppers, different varieties. You know, we're both from the West Indian culture in the African diaspora, so we love hot peppers. Mm -hmm. And there's about five different hot peppers here. We have some arugula. We have lavender right here. What are you yeah. doing with the lavender? We also make tea mixes as well as scent burners, like incense type thing. So yep. you can make it with natural lavender. You can make it with like natural sage and natural herbs and tie them together. And once they fully dry, you can use them as an incense. So the house smells amazing. We do also grow rosemary and sage as well and lemongrass. Mm -hmm. So we would bundle those together and that would make the smudge sticks or incense sticks that he was talking about. And I personally use the combination of our lemon balm we grow, the lemongrass, sage, and some rosemary. And I use that as a hair rinse as well. Mm -hmm. Before we jump away from the flowers, can you explain why did you choose marigold flowers? What do they do for the ecosystem of your garden? Well, we also have a few beehives that were installed from here. So there's a friend of ours who were getting bees. They needed somewhere to put them. And as well, we uh, made some friends with people from the honeybee project that they needed spaces to put their bees as well. So along with giving the bees a source of food, it does help with attracting other pollinators. And as well, it does help with keeping certain pests or insects, not necessarily away from the plants, but they act almost as a trap crop to where it would attract them to the marigolds versus anything else that we would plant. And I got a problem, and I'm just an addict for flowers. So, Word. <laughs> you know, the, the more space that I have to put them, I, I definitely will. Yeah, yeah, so, we yeah. can't forget the beauty of the farming, too. Exactly, Absolutely. Exactly, So, yeah, so that's that's the reason for the, um, the marigolds and then the sunflowers. Again, it's just something that we know once they are in bloom, they'll last for a long time, and they'll give all the pollinators uh, a source of food to come in and to visit all the other plants in the garden. Although they're not perennial, but due to the birds, and I haven't seen any out here, but possibly squirrels, they'll replant and spread them out for us. And that way, when they do germinate next season, all we need to do, if need be, is just relocate them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they, they produce so many seeds, they just exactly. pop up again. Yes. So let's take a walk down here and see what else is growing over here. This first few sections here, we have our peppers, and then we also have some arugula going on as well. And then right after that, we have our garlic patch, which is, uh, we'll be coming to um, harvest the actual garlic scapes off of them. And then right behind you here in this section, we have the callaloo. The best way I always describe it to people, it's like it's a Jamaican Spanish. Mm -hmm. And then right behind that, in these two trellis areas, we have some cucumbers and then some snap peas. 
which are cucumbers. We did get them in a little too early. So the cold weather has kind of been slowing them down a little bit. And with our snap peas, Mr. Groundhog decided to come make a snack out of them. Mm. As soon as they were approaching a size where they'd start flowering, he came in and ate every last bit of it. Mm. So It's a rough are, part of farming. Yes, it is. So yeah. hopefully the weather does warm up a little bit. We do have some new seeds in there, so they'll germinate a little faster. But we have all of that set there. And then on the other half of the field over there, some cilantro, which he ate as well, and then along oh. with some uh, lettuce and things like that. Oh, man. Which he ate as well. <laughs> yeah. This is why you have these other it's products, relentless. right? <laughs> yeah, this is why we had other products. We needed something immediately to grow in the midst of us waiting or trying to gain the finance to put the fence up. So that's why we switched over and to grow a lot of different herbs and things like that, or just plants that they wouldn't eat because the deer would also come through. But we noticed they wouldn't eat any of the hot peppers or anything like that. So we kind of just figured it out and found things that we would still be able to accomplish without you know, too much harm. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, like in the middle of our garlic patch, we also had some okras, some red okras. Then we have some lemongrass as you go further down. Then it's like a whole bunch of herbs like thyme, sage, rosemaries. And we have mint, we have collard greens, we have kale, we have a few mustard greens, we have carrots, a few spaces for cabbage, and then there's Jamaican sorrel, some What do you do with the sorrel? Sorrel, use it to make a tea. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the main source of it. It's a sorrel that you usually don't grow that up in Connecticut area, but if you start it off early enough, you'll be able to do it. And that's a rare one right there to have. Along with the sorrel in between each of them, we have some borage planted as well. One is just another um, herb that we'll be processing this year for tea bags. And also, it is one of the favorite flowers of the, the bees. So again, we always have them in mind as well. So that's why we interplanted the uh, sorrel and the borage as well, yes. This taller one here is the sorrel? Yes. And so. is that the sorrel that is going to have the red flowers? Yes. Is that yes, type? It so is. it's like a type of hibiscus, yes, right? Yeah, uh, hibiscus. Yeah. yeah. So, so just to distinguish yeah. that, that mm-hmm. this is the flower that's used to make the iced tea. Correct. Yeah. And when you make your, your sorrel tea, do you add spices to it? This is going to be the first year that we do it, so we're excited. Yeah, we got to come up with our own recipes. When All it's right. like a traditional Jamaican recipe, yes. But I want to come up with our right. Jamaican harvest recipe. Well, I love that the practices that you're doing are also helping to get carbon to stay in the soil and you're not putting like toxic fertilizers on and you're intercropping things like all those things also help. We have our own vermicompost. Vermicompost is basically worm castings. You you feed the worms food, you feel the worms, um, stuff that you have on the field and they'll break that down and the castings are used as natural fertilizer. So you have your worms working with you on a farm. That's great. Might as well just use nature to help you out with your plants. That's right. Mm -hmm. So we just keep everything in a continuous cycle in a loop. So any weeds that we pull out or any um, vegetable scraps, that goes into the vermicompost and then goes back into the garden. That's Mm -hmm. great. Well, I know another part of what you all do is that you work on building supports and coalitions of black, indigenous, and brown farmers. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how are you doing that and why are you doing that? Well, I think it's important... Because as we stated, traditionally from our community, everybody equates farming into slavery, so that keeps a lot of people away. We have been working to change that aspect of it, and as well, a lot of the farmers that we even ran into from the New Farmers Coalition or the BIPOC Coalition, 
they had the same sentiment as us. They felt like they were alone out there, that there weren't any other minority farmers and things like that. I feel having us all together, one, we're able to keep our spirits up with each other no matter what we go through because whenever we do post anything about the groundhog eating stuff, we always get tons of different suggestions or just tons of support. And we're always stronger together. So one idea that we have been bouncing around with each other is having like in a coalition sense to where we would pull all of our harvest together or if everybody's growing one specific crop that we would put all of that together so that way we'd be able to market it better or be able to market it to either like a larger source or somebody else who would purchase everything. That's dope. I love it. Thank you both so much for letting us visit your farm. I know you got a lot of work to do so appreciate you taking a break to give us a tour and tell us about your your special operation. No problem. No problem. Thank you. Thank you for coming. That was season producer Tegan Engel talking with Richard Myers and Sean Joseph, Farmer Rich and Farmer Sean. They are changing the image of farming one plant at a time at Park City Harvest. You can find them in person Saturdays at Reservoir Community Farm in Bridgeport. During the farm tour, Sean said Park City Harvest has some hives from the Honeybee Project. They're based in New Haven. Its founder and two teenage beekeepers were on our show in 2021 to talk about beekeeping as therapy and as a social enterprise. I'll link to the episode on our show page, ctpublic.org slash season. And to learn more about Park City Harvest and its tenacious stewards, follow them on social media or go to their website, parkcityharvest.com. You'll find lots more info about their mission, their products, and their Patreon there. And you can sign up for a year-round subscription to Microgreens, one small way, literally a micro way, that you can support local farmers. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Farmer Rich and Farmer Sean are authors, too. Coming up after the break, Tegan cooks a recipe from their book, Grow to Eat, a vegetable growing guide slash cookbook. This book is really meant to help people make cooking from the farm and garden easy. So if you feel comfortable not measuring, you can just guess. And if you feel comfortable measuring, go for it. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned, everyone. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. You just heard producer Tegan Engel talk with urban farmers and entrepreneurs Richard Myers and Sean Joseph. 
They graduated from Naugatuck Community College with horticulture degrees, and they're passionate not only about organic farming, but also empowering their community through farming. Aside from everything they do at Park City Harvest, Rich and Sean are authors too. Their first book is Grow to Eat. Being the cookbook-loving chef that she is, Tegan, of course, wanted to cook something from the book. And Tomi, her teenager, pops in to help as well. Tegan takes it from here. After flipping through their beautiful book, which has tons of great tips on growing and cooking veggies, I'm really inspired to get in the kitchen and cook up something warm as the weather's getting cold outside. The eggplant goulash recipe looks great, and I can use up some of the tomatoes I still have from the garden. I'm in my kitchen, and I'm going to walk you through how I make this recipe and some of the fun things that you can do with it. It's super versatile. Eggplant goulash is an Eastern European dish, and there's similar recipes like this that are cooked in cultures all around the world. The point of this cookbook is really to get us cooking from the garden and the farm and to make it really easy. So this is a great recipe for us to start with. First, we're going to take our eggplant and we're going to cut it up into one inch pieces. I cut off the ends and then I cut from the top to the bottom to make one inch thick slabs. Now I'm going to cut them the long way in strips and then cut them across again to make cubes. For this recipe, you can use two medium-sized eggplants or one large one. Now we're going to get our pan nice and warm. Once the pan is hot, we're going to add some oil, about two tablespoons. Now we're going to add our eggplant to the pan and add some salt as well. The salt is going to help draw the moisture out of the eggplant and get the dish cooking well. All right, now for our onion and garlic, we're going to chop them up into a small to medium dice and add them to the pan after the eggplant browns a bit. I'm also going to stir my eggplant as it's going so that it doesn't burn. Once the eggplant has browned a little bit, we can add our onions and our garlic. This recipe calls for two cloves of garlic, but I really love garlic, so I'm using four. We're gonna cook up the onion and garlic till it gets translucent on about medium-high heat. We don't want it to burn, but we want it to cook kind of quickly. I love recipes like this because they're such a great base and you can really season them any way you want and you could add proteins and kind of whatever you have in the kitchen. So feel free to add some zucchini, some beans, different spices, and I'll tell you some other ideas as we get going. But that's a great way to make this dish work with whatever you have on hand. So let's get our spices going. We're going to add some cumin, some ground caraway seeds, Hey, Tommy, you want to come cook with me? Yeah. <laughs> All right. My teenager just walked in the kitchen and I actually need a hand, so they're going to help me. Tommy, can you help me cook? Of course. Happy to. All right. Can you stir that up and also add in some paprika? We have our cumin. We got our caraway seed and give it some paprika. And then I like it a little spicy. So this is not in the original recipe for the book, but I'm going to add a little pinch of red pepper flakes. 
More paprika or is that good? A little bit more. It takes about one teaspoon. We're sprinkling and approximating, which is a great thing to do. This book is really meant to help people just make cooking from the farm and garden easy. So if you feel comfortable not measuring, you can just guess. And if you feel comfortable measuring, go for it. All right, great that you're stirring up because while the recipe calls for a can of crushed tomatoes, I actually have some tomatoes from the garden that I need to use up. So I'm gonna dice those up while you're stirring. Tomi, how's the dish looking to you? It's looking pretty good right now. The onions are starting to get a little bit translucent and everything seems to be browning really nicely. Great. I love when kids show up at just the right time to help. <laughs> and when they're helpful. <laughs> Tommy, what are some things that you like to cook from the garden? Oh my goodness. What is there that I don't like to cook from the garden? Especially things with peas and tomatoes. All those fresh flavors blend really, really nicely together. Especially with a starch. Obviously, they're great in pasta, you know, tomato sauce, but also like using fresh peas in a pesto or combining peas and sprinkling them into a dish that has lemon, maybe a little bit of feta cheese, things like that. Yeah, the other night we made this dish, the same one we're making now, and I made it on polenta, like a cooked cornmeal polenta for the family. Knowing that Tomi's not such a big fan of polenta, I made some pasta for them. So it was really versatile for the family meal. All right, now we're gonna add our tomatoes. First we sauteed our spices to activate their flavor in the heat and the oil, and now we're adding our tomatoes. So this recipe also calls for some broth. And I like to use the better than bouillon broth, which is a concentrate, and then I mix it with water. If for some reason you don't have broth, you might just wanna use a little more garlic and salt and pepper. All right, now we're gonna season with a little more salt and pepper, and then we're gonna let it simmer and see how it tastes in about 20 minutes, and then adjust the seasoning from there. All right, let's stir that up a little bit and let's get a top on it so that it can cook well. We're gonna bring the heat down to low or like a medium low, depending on your stove. Cover the pot and let it simmer for about 20 to 30 minutes. Then I usually like to check it once in the middle, maybe adjust the seasoning and let it cook a little more. In total, it might cook 30 to maybe 40 minutes. One thing that I love to do is to add white beans to this dish. Chickpeas could also be great, and if you would prefer to put meat in, you could put any meat of your choice in and let it simmer in the sauce as it's cooking. By adding protein, you make this basically a one-pot meal, and you can serve it up with any starch that you like or skip the starch and serve it as a delicious stew. While the dish is simmering, I'll share that I really love adding different seasoning to this dish. So today I seasoned it as it is in the cookbook with cumin, caraway, and paprika, a little pepper. Sometimes I like to take it in an Italian direction and you could add some thyme, some basil, rosemary, oregano, or even some fennel seed if you like. Um, you could also do a kind of North African seasoning, add some cinnamon, some clove, keep the cumin, maybe add some coriander and some spices like that. Um, really can take it in any direction to reflect whatever culture you're from or whatever culture's food you feel like eating that night and whatever you have in your house. 
The book is really fun. I'm enjoying seeing their recipes and reminding me to cook some things that maybe I've forgotten about that I used to cook from the garden or get inspired about some of the things that they cook, like the pickles from Haiti, um, even just their regular pickles, how they cook up their greens. They have a great recipe for greens with eggs cooked in it, which is great. It sort of reminds me of shakshuka, which is a Middle Eastern dish that I grew up eating, but this is a green version. So just some really wonderful, inspiring things. And it makes it feel a little more special to me to cook this recipe out of their book, uh, not just out of my own head or out of some cookbook from some famous person who lives far away. Uh, this is one from right in my backyard, and I'm just so grateful. It makes feeding my family this food and my community this food feel all the more nourishing. And hopefully you can get your teens, your kids cooking with you in the kitchen, even if they just drop in for a few minutes. That was producer Tegan Engel, cooking in her kitchen. Grow to Eat, the vegetable growing guide slash cookbook by Richard Myers and Sean Joseph is available on their website, parkcityharvest.com. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up after the break, when you think of all the wonderful local things we grow in the state, do you immediately think of grapes? Wine? Probably not, but you should. There's a nice blend of hybrid grapes. And depending on what you're used to tasting, you may go, oh, wow, that's different. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. When I think about local Connecticut food, I think about honey and maple syrup, oysters, apples, squash, lobster rolls, pizza, cider donuts, you know, all the delicious things that we're known for. I don't automatically think of grapes, but there are 45 licensed farm wineries in our state. That's 45 spots where at least 25% of the grapes are grown on site. I wanted to share some highlights from a recent Where We Live conversation all about Connecticut's wine country. Did you know we have a very distinct terroir here? That's just a fancy word for the many things that give a wine its distinct flavor. Think soil, climate, salty air along the coast, things like that. Where We Live host Catherine Shen spoke with Alice Firing, a journalist and author of a newsletter about natural wine, and friend of the show, Leanne Griffin. She's the food and consumer reporter at Hearst, Connecticut. Plus, we'll hear from a local winery owner and manager. Here's Leanne explaining what makes farm wineries in Connecticut unique. Farm wineries here are growing, like you said, using 25% of their own estate grapes. They're growing on the premises. They have their own vines. They are sometimes bringing in grapes from other parts of the country to sort of highlight or boost their production. But in almost every case, you're going to get a state wine made on the premises from those grapes in Connecticut. You know, we come across this word uh, terroir a lot. Can mm -hmm. you tell us mm -hmm. why is that such an important part of this conversation, especially when we're thinking about all of the microclimates here in New England? There are several kinds of wine. One is just a wine to drink, and another one is a wine of place that really expresses, you know, much the way an artist would look at a landscape and try to interpret that. A winemaker who is growing their own grapes really 
will look at that landscape and try to express the soil, the rocks beneath the soil, the climate, and basically that snapshot. So terroir would be, for me, is where the human hand meets art, science, nature. It's very metaphoric. So you just, no, just I was, run with it. no, I was going to say I love it because it feels very much like poetry in a bottle, what you're just describing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know it when you taste it. And not every wine, not every wine can do that to you. It's it's impossible. So sometimes just a good drink is good enough. <laughs> I have to be honest, I, I was surprised to hear that there's such a huge wine culture uh, here in, in New England and in Connecticut. And so, Leanne, I want to ask you, you know, how would you characterize Connecticut in this context? You know, is agritourism really at the heart of it? Yeah, I think what is so interesting about Connecticut is that it's such a small state, but there are so many different microclimates within it that do affect the wine. You've got wineries in literally every corner of Connecticut. So you've got the Litchfield Hills wineries who probably deal with colder weather at higher elevations. And then you have wine from wineries down on the coast, kind of taking in the salt air from Long Island Sound, and that impacts how they're grown too. So really, you're getting very different experiences at every winery in the state. And I think that's as, as a person who covers food and wine and as a, a consumer who goes to these wineries, it's been really interesting to me because it's almost like you get to know the state that way. Right. And like I mentioned earlier, I just did not expect to learn more about Connecticut through wine. It was just it, my mind is still very much boggled by it. And Alice, what would you add to this You know about Connecticut's role in this revolution? There are such different microclimates, but also there's not only grapes, but there's also a great deal of fruit wineries. And I just kind of love the way Connecticut is bringing in all of these under one umbrella that's kind of new to the consumer and kind of fun. One of the things that's happening in the wine world is there's a lot of emphasis now on fruit wines and other fermentables. And Connecticut could just glom right onto that. We've been talking about vineyards here and and how it's grown. But, you know, what are the flavors of New England? You know, how would you describe them and how how does that change region to region? Well, one thing that New England is going to be really known for, whether it's Maine, Rhode Island or Connecticut, is high acidity. That's one reason that up in Vermont, there are so many sparkling wines that Mm -hmm. are being offered. Because that kind of mutes the high acidity a little bit and also makes for really, really refreshing wines. That's front and center, the refreshment quality and and like nice, like bright acidity. Sounds very nice for a summer, summer season. Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) And Leanne, how would you describe the flavors of Connecticut? Some of the the grapes that are grown here are certainly geared toward a colder climate. So there are things like Cayuga and grapes that are grown in the Finger Lakes region, other things that can handle extreme cold. So A lot of the wines I am familiar with with Connecticut wineries are ones that are hardy grapes that can can handle that cold. Sometimes you taste a little more of a a Chardonnay, you taste more of a sweetness to it. Um, I think high acidity is probably accurate from what Alice has said. There are a lot of lighter reds, maybe not as many rich Cabernet Sauvignons because that would be a grape that would grow better in a West Coast climate. There's a lot of variety, but I do associate Connecticut with the colder weather grapes. Yeah, I think that people coming to Connecticut and New England who are expecting European-like flavors, even California flavors, they've got to widen the perspective. And these are going to be wines of refreshment. Also, while there is some vinifera grown in Connecticut, 
there's a nice blend of hybrid grapes. And depending on what you're used to tasting, you may go, oh, wow, that's different. It is an opportunity for really to broaden one's sense of, of domestic winemaking and what that tastes like. Since we're talking about regions and how climate impacts and, and thinking about Long Island Sound and the Connecticut River, how does that factor in, Leanne? And, you know, is salinity a flavor picked up towards the coast? Uh, I think so. I think I've, I've, I would say my palate may not be as experienced as Alice's, so she might be able to pick that up on her own. But I do think that I have heard winemakers on the coast say that the salinity and the, the winds, the proximity to Long Island Sound does factor into their viticultural area. And joining the conversation to discuss farm vineyard operations around where we live is Ryan Winyarski, who's the owner of Priam Vineyards, and Patty Rowan, who is the winery manager at Hopkins Vineyard in Warren. So, Patty, we want to start with you. We know Hopkins Vineyards is a family-owned and operated vineyard here in Connecticut. Can you tell us a little bit about the history behind this gem that's located in Litchfield? Absolutely. We are um, actually the second oldest winery, and we are very proud of our history here. Um, we actually grow 95% of our grapes here, and we're very proud of that. The only wines we don't grow for is fruit wines, and then we have one wine that we outsource the juice for simply because of the popularity of the wine. But we grow 95% of our grapes here, and we have almost 30 acres of vineyard. It is still owned by the same family that settled here way back in 1787. It morphed into a dairy farm and remained a dairy farm up until 1979. Bill Hopkins, who still lives on the property, decided in 1979 to take a big risk when no one else is doing it. And he, he wanted to start growing a vineyard. He was winemaking as a hobby. Everyone told him he was maybe a little crazy for thinking that way. Uh, but I think he proved everybody wrong um, looking at the wine industry and the the popularity of wineries in Connecticut today, I think he kind of saw the future. Well, and I think winemakers seems to be really intense risk takers as well. So, I mean, congratulations on that history, Patty. That sounds amazing. And and can you describe the region you're in uh, a bit and how that influences the flavors in your wines? We are in the Litchfield Hills. You know, our climate varies a lot here. Right now, it's raining like crazy. And Rain isn't always good for us. Our grapes tend to really excel when it's drier out. You know, we grow more whites than reds here. We do have a couple of reds that we're really known well for, and they're hardy reds. Our Cabernet Franc is a hardy red that grows well in this area, as well as our Lemberger grape, which is, again, a little more of a hardier red. We don't do well with any kind of Pinot Noirs or absolutely not with Melos. They just don't grow well in this area. Whites are really our forte. Uh, we, we grow Vidal Blanc. We grow Cayuga. Saval Blanc and Tremonetti, and these are all white grapes that really, really grow well around here. And most of our wines that we are popular and we are, are famous for are whites. They have a really crisp, clean flavor. Our winemaker's been here for 31 years. He not only makes the wine, but he also is responsible for all the growing. He really is kind of the bones of our operation here. That's a little bit about how our wines prosper here. And Ryan, I want to bring you here. You and your fiance Meredith recently took over Priam Vineyards. Can you tell us about that decision and how this first year or so has gone? 
Sure. We started, uh, we purchased the property July 1st last year, and it was just more about making a lifestyle change. We just decided during COVID, it was kind of, we were spending too much time inside. We didn't get that joy of life as much as we wanted to. So we took this on as a challenge and decided it was time to make a new life. And here we are. Well, we were just talking about winemakers being uh, risk takers, and you both certainly <laughs> took a huge risk with that decision. And that sounds really, really fun and adventurous. And how would you describe the flavors of Connecticut? We're actually in Colchester. We have a bunch of rivers around us. We're on a hill. So there is just a crazy difference to the wines you get everywhere in the state. Um, it's kind of just a challenge to get people to understand how different the terroir and the environment impacts the wine and the winemaking and the grapes that come off the property. So it's a very interesting environment everywhere you go. Patty, can you tell us about how you would describe the flavors of Connecticut and and how your environment impacts your wines? Uh, environment's very similar to, I would say, the upper state New York region is maybe Oregon, Washington. We're lucky enough that we do have those cold days in the winter where our grapes do freeze and we're able to produce a really delicious ice wine. But I think the, the flavors that we get here, uh, I, I use crisp and clean a lot because I think the environment up here does give our wine that type of a finish. They just have a completely different taste than if you were to go buy a bottle of white wine in a liquor store because the environment does give the flavors that type of finish and the taste is just so delicious and crisp on your tongue. And um, that's due to the growing environment around here. And Ryan, can you give us an example of how you're innovating uh, on an old favorite with new flavors? Yeah. So like with our Chardonnay, we do very similar where we're part on oak, part on steel. So it gives it a very different flavor from what people traditionally buy in a package store. And they are used to a much bolder, huge Chardonnay with a lot of um, oakiness to it. And I find that most people, when they come in, when they say, oh, I hate Chardonnays, we pour them that and they instantly say, wow, I never even expected a Chardonnay to taste like this. It's a real surprise for them. And we have two other ones, I'd say, like the Riesling and the Gewürztraminer, which really we do in a different style. So they're not as sweet, but they have that sweet, refreshing crispness that we're talking about. And very different, I'd say, from most of the vineyards that people are used to and what they are used to in the New England area. Is going to a winery and having that experience, does that change the taste you feel um, when they're actually physically there? There is something magical about the environment to begin with. So when you're surrounded and you see the vines and you go up to the tasting room and you get to talk with the people, they really help you kind of understand what you're tasting and what you're experiencing. Yeah, I think so. I think you feel more connected to the wine when you're there. I think you can taste anything from a liquor store, maybe not know the history behind it. But when you're at the winery and you see them, you know, if you're a certain time of year, you see them harvesting, you see them doing the work, you see them out in the vines, you understand just how much work goes into it and how much passion these winemakers have. And the different types of grapes that are grown in the cold weather in Connecticut are maybe not as well known as some of the mass marketed wines from California and the larger wine markets. So you really do get a learning experience when you do go to these wineries and try new things and sample. 
So bring a notepad and, and pens is what you're saying, right? <laughs> when you're going to these tastings. Or at least uh, snap a shot of the bottle. <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah. that's the best way to remember. <laughs> there you go. And Patty, we know both Hopkins and Priam Vineyards are stops on the state's passport to a wine country program. What are your thoughts about agritourism? I think it's really important to the state and it's really important to our customers. Connecticut Wine Trail Passport is something that our customers love to do. They take it very seriously, visiting the wineries and making sure they get their stamp and having a little piece of the winery to take along with them when they leave. And not only that, but every winery just has its own little story. There's something special about all of us and we all have a different story, so to speak. Well, I really love this idea of special stories all bottled up in wines. And you've been listening to Ryan Winyarski with Priam Vineyards. Thank you so much for being with us today. And Patty Rowan, who is the winery manager at Hopkins Vineyard in Warren. You've also been hearing from Alice Firing and Leanne Griffin with Hearst, Connecticut. Thank you for being with us. That was Where We Live's host, Catherine Shen. You can get more information about the Passport to Wine Country program at ctwinecountry.com. And you can listen to the complete episode on ctpublic.org slash where we live. It's worth a listen, especially if you want to hear from the state's commissioner of agriculture. He was a guest, too. Spotlights like this are something I plan to do as the new host of Seasoned. I'm always making discoveries and looking for good stories about food and farms to share with you. And we want to hear from you, too. In fact, we've got an episode coming up highlighting great ice cream in the state. Send us a voice memo shouting out your favorite local ice cream shop and why you love it. Email it to seasoned at ctpublic.org. I'm Robin Doyon Aitken. Seasoned is produced by me and Katie Tolerski, Meg Dalton, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Tegan Engel, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. Special thanks today to Katie Pellico, one of the producers of Where We Live. To keep up with the latest on Seasoned, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on X, you know, formerly Twitter. Catch this and past episodes of Seasoned wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. And a reminder, every month I feature recent episodes, recipes from cookbooks I love, and gardening tips from Charlie Nardozzi in full plate, our newsletter for foodies. Go to ctpublic.org newsletters to sign up. Thanks for listening, everybody.